So today um, is, is a good day. I'd like to welcome you back to our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We've been in it since September of 2019, and um, as many of you know, because you were with us over this Advent season, we took a pause for about four weeks, and we worked our way through some of the Old Testament offices uh, that were a shadow of the promised Christ to come. But now today, like I said, we're going to get back into John's gospel and his Holy Spirit-inspired narration of Jesus's life and ministry. Today, we're going to begin preaching through chapter 17. So if you want to open your Bibles, that's the chapter we're actually going to be in, John chapter 16, or rather 17. Um, And you can do that while I keep talking. And if you're going to use one of the Bibles in front of you, uh, the page number is 849. Now, I said this in this last week's newsletter that this chapter, chapter 17, is actually my favorite chapter in the Bible. Um, I guess I should say, if you're not receiving the newsletter, you can actually do so by signing up online, or you can talk to me and I'll get you signed up. But I said that in the letter, that it's my favorite chapter, and that I love it so much because we get to hear the heart of Jesus. We get to hear the heart of Jesus. There are really two main prayers that we have from Jesus in scriptures. I guess I could say that we have two which are really the most famous of prayers from Jesus in the scripture. And one of those prayers is not this one. One of those prayers is called the Lord's Prayer. Probably everybody knows that one. It's the uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, this, this, and so on. But this one Uh, In chapter 17 is called Jesus's high priestly prayer. So we have the Lord's prayer, which is very famous. And this one as well as the Jesus's high priestly prayer. And believe me, I enjoy the Lord's prayer as well. I've said that, you know, this one is my favorite, but I enjoy the Lord's prayer uh, almost as much because growing up, my mom actually had this cross stitch uh, in our dining room of the Lord's prayer that my grandma Ruby made. And I would just sit there and I would eat and I would read it over and over and over and again. I always got hung up on hallowed. I didn't understand what that word meant, Uh, but I would read it over and over and over again. Or when I would come home from school, I would grab a snack and then I would just sort of stand there and stare at it for a very long time. And as I did that, the Lord really wrote his word on my heart in that time. And it's a really uh, pivotal point in me coming to faith, um, as well as I have the image of that cross stitch burned into my brain where I can imagine all the border and the, the little paisley stitching and all sorts of stuff. But as the Lord did this, uh, as he wrote this on my heart, um, which I'm very fond of, he, he did this with the Lord's prayer. But this prayer is different. This prayer, uh, the high priestly prayer, is different because the words of this prayer, uh, to me, are even more sweet. They're, they're even more sweet because, again, we get to hear not just faithful instruction, which the Lord's Prayer actually is. The Lord's Prayer is actually instruction to Jesus' disciples on how they are to pray. But in this prayer, again, we get to hear, we're allowed to hear the affections of the Lord's heart. So that's why it's so sweet to me. It's why I love it so much more because we actually get to know more of Christ or about Christ. So let's read our passage for today. Like I said, we're going to be in John chapter 17. So if you want to turn your Bibles and stand in reverence for God's word, it's going to be up on the screen as usual. You can follow along there, but we're going to read John chapter 16 verses 1 through 5. 17, 1 through 5. This is what it says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to God. Have a seat. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are grateful that you give us something that we can hear you speak to us on a daily basis. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see this truth as we listen to your son pray. We listen to his words and affections of his heart and as he follows after your will and completes your purpose. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that you continue to drive us together as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, something like this has been said before. It's not original to me. But it was said that just as a man cannot live without breathing, a person's soul cannot flourish without prayer. Just as a man can't live without breathing, a man's soul cannot flourish without prayer. Prayer, in fact, is what we do when we desire to express our longings to God. It is our way of petitioning to God who is gracious, who is compassionate, who is present with us. Chapter 17 here has within it some of Jesus's final and direct words that he says in front of his disciples to his father only hours before this appointed time of his death on the cross, right? So this is a a very unique, uh, very pivotal, very, very special moment that Christ is praying to his father right before he actually goes to complete the work on the cross, that appointed time. Now, even though this chapter or this prayer, as it's been titled, is so famous, and even though it is so known and it actually has been and can be sort of pulled out and studied on its own, this chapter or this prayer doesn't stand alone by itself. It doesn't stand alone. It's not meant to stand alone. It's actually very intimately connected to everything that John has already laid out for us to know about Jesus and his purpose in coming. It's very intimately connected to everything. Which way are we going? Everything that John has written in the past of John chapter from 16 back to chapter 1, as well as everything that's to come. Jesus' prayer here has in view the very nature of the relationship between himself and God the Father, as well as the eternal plan of salvation, which includes, uh, which includes the way in which the disciples and all believers, for that matter, fit into that plan. So what Jesus is praying about in chapter 17 is the nature of their relationship between the Father and the Son, as well as the eternal plan of salvation for all of those who believe and how we fit in it. That's what this prayer is actually talking about. Uh, it's, It's wonderful. We should read it over and over and over again in a way to understand it, which is why, since it encompasses so much, which is why it's common among commentators to divide this prayer into three sections just to help us understand it. They, they divide it into three sections, which we're going to do. Um, number one, the first section, Jesus prays, to, or prays for himself in verses one through five, which is what we're covering today. Jesus prays for himself in verses one through five. Jesus prays for his disciples in six through 19. And then Jesus prays for his church in verses 20 and 26. Now, again, we're obviously only going to be covering the first part today, but this prayer is also talked about in the other Gospels. 
right? We have the synoptic gospels and we have John's narrative. We talked about that when we, this when we first started this series. The synoptic gospels are more of a uh, uh, sort of a uh, documentary view of Jesus's life and ministry. And John's gospel is more of a, uh, a relational view of Jesus's life and ministry. It's talking about the same time frame, but their sort of approach is different. This prayer is talked about in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, as well as in Luke 22. And in those writings, in those gospels, in the synoptic gospels, it talks about how Jesus goes to this particular place. He goes to a garden. That garden is called Gethsemane. And in those gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read how Jesus is really, um, he's really suffering in agony. He's really faced with all sorts of toil and, and anxiety over what looms ahead, over knowing that the cross is just hours away. He's even said that he is in such physical pain that he actually sweats blood, exemplifying how, how much turmoil, how much anxiety he's actually uh, working through, which might lead us to think if we take the Synoptic Gospels articulation and we take John's articulation, it might make us think that these uh, these different accounts are talking about different moments of prayer, but they're not. They're actually talking about the exact same moment, the exact same time in the garden. So I want to quickly show us how that is. because It's important. It's important for us to understand. I want to show us how that is. Doesn't it make sense when we step back and consider everything going on? Doesn't it make sense when we step back and consider all that's happened so far in Jesus's life and ministry and what's about to happen that Jesus would be wrestling with all kinds of emotions? Just think about it. Remember, he is both God and man. Doesn't it make sense with everything happening that Jesus would be wrestling with these emotions? We've seen him do this in the past. What his wrestling with emotions should be seen or considered to be normal. And I think that's what he's doing. I think that he's showing us this wrestle. He's displaying for us perfectly the great difficulty of having to connect and put together both suffering and obedience. Right? That's what we see in Jesus when we look at this account from the Synoptic Gospels as well as John's Gospel. We see suffering as well as obedience. And he's showing us this because we go through the exact same thing, right? In our lives, we suffer and we are still called to walk it out faithfully, being obedient to the Father. So when we consider the cross, knowing what's standing in front of Jesus, right? He knows it as well. But when we consider the cross and the reality that Jesus knew the purpose of his coming, which was to redeem and reconcile God's chosen people, couldn't it make sense that we would learn that Jesus was both resolute in his purpose and horrified by what was about to happen. Could that be possible? It could be possible. It is possible. Remember, God is, rather, Jesus is God as well as fully man. So it's possible that he was resolute in his purpose and still horrified in what was about to happen. Again, I think this is the kind of response from Jesus that we see, and I think that his response is normal. Again, we struggle with this same thing. We are called to be faithfully obedient even when we suffer, which is why or how the four Gospels are seen as not contradicting each other. Rather, they give us this fuller picture of who Jesus is. Right? When we take all of Scripture, the whole counsel of God's Word, and we work it against each other, we get the fuller picture, the most full picture of Jesus Christ himself. 
Okay, so let's look at how Jesus is praying here. Let's look at how or, or what Jesus is praying and how he's praying for himself to the Father in this first section. So verse 1 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has told the people that his hour has not come. He's consistently told the people as he's been walking through his ministry, the time has not come. This, you know, this is not the hour that is, is, going to, 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 is going to happen because there was an appointed time. Jesus knew that there was an appointed time in God's will for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And so far, it hasn't been that time. But Jesus says, but now is that time. Now is that hour. It has arrived. And then he asked the Father if he would glorify the Son. Now is the time. Glorify your Son. And it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying here. It's important for us to understand what Jesus means by using the word glorify. Because the word glorify, as we work to translate this into English, it can mean multiple things. The word glorify actually can mean multiple things because it could mean to praise or to honor someone. It could mean to praise or honor someone because God's purpose in and through the gospel was that the people of God would honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's John 5, 23. God's purpose and plan was to send Jesus and through the work that Jesus would do, the people were meant to honor, praise Jesus the Son just as they honored the Father, because in this event where the Son was to be lifted up in this horrible and shameful manner, which was his death on the cross, his obedience and action would create, it does create in us worship and praise around the world for men and women whom he bore their sins. Right? For us who understand what Christ actually did, when we understand the gospel, when we see the reality that Jesus came, lived, and died for us, it creates worship and praise in us. And he deserves our honor. And because of that, he deserves our praise. But in this context, that's not what it means. All of that is true, but in this context, that word glorify does not mean that. In this context, the translation means to clothe in splendor to clothe in splendor. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus is in fact praying for, and what he's petitioning for from God the Father is to be given back what was rightfully his. That's what he's asking the Father to do. He says, my work is complete. Give me back what is rightfully mine, what belongs to me. D.A. Carson says it like this. He's asking the Father to reverse the self emptying, entailed in his incarnation, and to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. This is what Jesus was talking about back in chapter 14. If you remember back to that part of the study, Jesus had said to his disciples that he must leave them. He has to go back to the Father. And if they loved him, they would rejoice for him because of what it would mean to him. Right? Jesus was, had to go. In order to complete the work that he was sent here to do, he would have to go to the cross and he would have to return back to heaven. And if they understood that, they would rejoice over what that means for him. In fact, also for them. 
in this prayer, when Jesus prays to be glorified, he's showing us his willingness to obey the Father even unto death. Again, Jesus has been resolute in his obedience. He knows, and his only purpose is the Father uh, to follow in the Father's will. That's what the first part of Philippians two chapter or Philippians chapter two is telling us. That's what the first part. You're going to have to go read that on your own because we won't have time to discuss it today. But if you want to go and understand this a little bit better, read Philippians two, the first few verses there, the first few uh, paragraphs, as well in his glorification. Uh, it was not an end in itself. His glorification was not an end in itself. His desire for glory was so that the Father would receive it as well. Look back at our passage, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. Now, this sounds backwards. This can sound foolish to those who don't have ears to hear. In fact, the Bible tells us that it will be, it will be foolishness to those who don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. But God is to be seen and worshipped in his splendor as he is glorified in the sending of his son to his death. Does that make sense? God is to be praised and worshipped and honored in all his splendor because he sent his son into the world and to his death. If you don't understand the gospel, that's backwards. But Jesus is praying. This is what Jesus is saying. It's Jesus' own words. Jesus is praying that there, that is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, their predetermined plan of salvation would be completed. He was praying that it would be completed just as he, that is God the Father, gave him, that is Jesus, all authority over the people of this world so that he can provide for us eternal life. He's asking that it could actually happen. He's asking that it actually gets completed. No longer does he want us to suffer in that way. He wants us to possess eternal life. Now, in that verse, in verse 2, there is, there is so much there. There is so much to understand from just verse 2 in regards to how salvation is, in fact, given to us. Uh, so I'm simply going to try and bullet point the, 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 the practical doctrinal truths that Jesus is talking about. But I can't spend the time really unpacking everything, so I'm simply going to try and bullet point the practical theology, the, the practical doctrine that Jesus is laying out for us. Because verse 2, in some ways, is just a summary of what Jesus has already taught us in chapters 3, 6, and 10, in one verse. So you can see how dense verse 2 actually is. So here it is. Here are the bullet points. God has sovereign authority over all things, since he is the one who created all things, and he gives that authority to the Son. And with that authority, Jesus is able to save and sustain his church for their good and his glory for eternity. Jesus' church, then, is everyone and anyone who the Father gives to him to save, and because of that, no one or no thing is capable of removing those who are saved from his hand. Amen. Again, verse 2 is just this really sneaky, theologically dense verse, and I wish we could unpack it, but we have to go on. We have to go to verse 3. 
Verse 3 says this, and this is eternal life. So as you said, these are the authority given to Jesus. This is how it's going to happen. And then verse 3, and this is eternal life, that we know that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here we have another very important word for us to understand. We have a very, uh, another uh, important word that we must understand. What does it mean to know the only true God? What does it mean to know the only true God? To know God means more than simply growing in intellectual knowledge of the truth. It means more than just simply ascending in some sort of understanding to what the scripture reads, what it actually says. Think of it how it relates to you. Think of it in this way, how it might relate to you. Um, uh, how is it that you feel the most known? When do you feel known by somebody else? Let me use sort of a, a silly example before I make my point. Do you feel more known if somebody just knows that it's your birthday? Or do you feel more known by that person if they know that it's your birthday, they reach out to you because it's your birthday, and they celebrate your birthday with you? You feel like this person understands you and actually knows you and has a relationship with you, right? Knowing someone and the type of knowledge that Jesus is articulating here is a knowledge that involves affection and commitment. It involves affection and commitment. Therefore, this eternal life that Jesus has the authority to provide us with is not merely everlasting life. Right? Often that's what we think of when we hear eternal life. That means, oh, I get to live on forever. Well, it doesn't merely mean everlasting life. It couldn't mean that because we know from Scripture that both the sinner and the saint are guaranteed to live forever. The only thing that differs is where and with whom you get to spend it. Everyone will live on after this life. The eternal life that is given by Christ is to be understood as an intimate, personal relationship with the one who is everlasting and eternal. God has been here from the, from the beginning, and he will be here at the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He was before there was form and void. He created all things. That is who he is. He is the one who is everlasting and eternal. There's this understanding of this rich fellowship when the creator declares that we will be his people and he will be our God. There's just an understanding of fellowship. There's an understanding, again, of that connection and, um, and uh, what word did I say? And commitment, affection and commitment. So Jesus continues on, verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's interesting to me as I was thinking about this. It's interesting to me that Jesus says that he has accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do when in fact the cross hadn't even happened yet. He says, I've, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then he asks again for the Father to glorify him. But if we think about it, if we, if we set back and, and actually think about it, it's not all that strange. 
Because again, he's articulating the, the, the nature of their relationship. It's actually not that strange. Jesus is simply showing us his resolution in the faith that he has for the Father and in the Father's will to be completed. His confidence in the Father's will to be accomplished allows him to presume faithfully that his work will be completed. That it will be finished, right? That's what he says on the cross. It is finished. He has faith, he can faithfully presume that the work will be accomplished and that he will be brought back to heaven where he will be restored to the rightful place of glory. He believes this. He knows this. He has complete confidence. There's, there's no lack of understanding between the Son and the Father. A little side note here, as we talk about Jesus returning back to his original state of glory, Jesus is not saying that he wants to lay aside his incarnation. He's not saying that he wants to leave this world behind, but he is, he, rather, what he is saying is that he, he, as we see, sorry, he doesn't want to leave his incarnation behind because he doesn't leave his body, by transformed body, which by that wondrous grace shows us what we can expect when we live that life which is eternal with him, right? So he returns. He doesn't lay down his incarnation. He remains man and God, but he shows us through his ascension what they get to their promised when we have rightly. In this prayer, Jesus was looking beyond the humiliation. Jesus was looking beyond the suffering that awaited him at the cross, and instead he focused on the joy that was set before him. That's where his focus belongs. He was focused on the joy, which is so intimately and directly connected to what is accomplished by Christ for us. That is what motivated, that is what continued to have Christ be resolute in the Father's will. He suffered and he died for our good and for God. It does. Everything that I've just said can be summed up by the Bible. And Hebrews 2, uh, verses 8 through 11, do that for us. Hebrews 2, 8 and 11. This is what it says. Now, putting, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, of God. He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, brothers. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. So how is it that we might know that this is true of us? How is it that we might know? How is it that we can believe that we are brothers or sisters of Christ to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The way that we know God is through Christ who chooses to reveal So I'll ask you, have your eyes and your ears been opened to this? Can your eyes see this truth that is written down in Scripture? Can your ears, as your ears hear this, can you understand this truth? And if so, if you hear what I'm saying, what might your faithful response be today? Even for believers, what is your faithful response today to this truth? How does this transform your heart? 
God's word for his final life has been given to us by alone. We have Jesus, who is the word. It's our duty is found in understand it. it. We have it right. that we are saved from the wrath of God over our sin by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. And as we've seen today, it is only through the Son that we can know God, and this happens for us through his grace, by his grace alone. Everything we have that we're talking about, each and every Sunday when we come here and, 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 and proclaim and preach the gospel, all of it is from Scripture alone. All of this truth comes to us from Christ. He gives us faith in him alone for his, by his grace and for his glory. This is what the gospel is articulating to us. This is what Jesus' prayer is trying to end on us. And as he prays to God, from the burden as he prays for himself, we must earn our right and I with God. That's what Jesus is praying. The, the work is accomplished. The work is finished. We've been set free from having that burden. We've been set free from having to earn our right standing. This gift of eternal life is not something that we can achieve through our character or good enough conduct. How many times have we heard that? Well, I think I'm good enough to make it into heaven. What's good, Jesus says? What is good? God is good. It really is a gift. It's a free gift. It's a free gift that we receive by admitting that we are sinners who need to repent as we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the faithful response. For believer and non-believer, that is in front of Jesus Christ, the Son, to accomplish before the world even existed. And since we're part of that work, I will ask that we honor the Father by yielding our lives to the Son. Maranatha, please, as we are part of this work, as we are the continuing part renewed daily, let's honor the Father by yielding our lives to the Son, the one who deserves to be clothed in splendor. If you would pray with me, please. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that your son is clothed in splendor. Lord, we want to rejoice because of what that means for him. Lord, and to recognize that Christ is the one in the world, but only of our worship and all that is proclaimed to us. Find uh, the ministry of Jesus. But only Lord, us as a church, Lord, please continue to keep us united. Continue to press us towards one another as we live with one another and for the mission that's been uh, placed before us and commissioned to us by Christ. Lord, we're thankful for all the work that your son has done, that he is, um, is not just the creator of the world and what lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. Lord, thank you for the truth. Please make our hearts respond in faith to that gospel. In Jesus' name, with the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.